Broadcasting while quarantine. This is Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 56, Bar Airman versus History. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. I am your host, Keith Darrell, and this is episode 56. We're going to be discussing Bart Ehrman versus history. I've been on a little bit of a Bart Ehrman kick, maybe for the last five or six months. What kind of set it off was a gentleman by the name of Stephen Wedgworth put out a tweet um, where a guy, Williams, Peter Williams, debated Bart Ehrman on a podcast show. And I personally think Bart Ehrman won because he was basically able to define the parameters of the debate. And once you accept his parameters of the debate, kind of tied into presuppositions and stuff like that, you're in an uphill battle proving anything that Ehrman doesn't want to allow into discussion. So what I want to do over the next three weeks is to look at uh, one thing that's kind of embarrassing. I'm just realizing there are people, I guess I knew people existed that didn't believe in the resurrection or in the, the burial of Jesus. But aside from like your, your crazy critics um, who, who thought Jesus was eaten by dogs, I didn't think there were too many mainstream people that didn't believe in the burial of Jesus. Well, Bart Ehrman apparently is now one of those people. And so I came across that at the end of last week and coming into Easter, uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, um, I've been thinking about just kind of our apologetic on the resurrection of Jesus more, and which made me think, obviously, of his burial. And as I was reading Bart Ehrman, you realize, you know, back in 1999, a book of his uh, that was like, I can't remember what it was called, but it had something to do with basically Jesus being an apocalyptic prophet. In there, he said he was most probably, you know, taken down from the cross, buried, blah, 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 it's unlikely that his disciples would have invented a story of a burial uh, had they seen him there days later and all that sort of stuff. But nowadays, he's willing to go with uh, some idea that he was maybe probably thrown into a mass grave, that uh, he was probably hung on the cross for a little bit for a few days, and then some, you know, animals ate from him, and then he, uh, birds, or whatever, then he was thrown into a mass grave, and indistinguishable from the others. And so what I want to do now is uh, first start to get into the trajectory of where we're going to go. Then next week, probably look at the burial, maybe from there, the resurrection. And uh, those are the things I want to talk about. Because coming into Eastern, you know, if you're for friends on Facebook, you probably saw me post about this the other day. But I was uh, every time, every Easter, basically, I, I, you think about the resurrection. And as Christians, I don't think we emphasize the physical bodily resurrection enough. Um, so you go to a funeral, grandma's dead. And everyone's like, oh, grandma's in a better place. And her spirit, you know, her body's here, but her spirit's in heaven. And I think there's truth to that. I think like Philippians 1, what is it, like 21, Paul says, it's better for me to die and go be with Christ, which is better by far. Um, so, you know, there's some sort of post-mortem existence for the spirit or the soul of man. In Revelation, I believe it's chapter 6 or 7, it talks about them being under the altar and crying out, the martyrs crying out, how long, O Lord? So they have some sort of existence uh, post-mortem. But uh, the emphasis in the Bible is on the resurrection of the body. And years ago, I was preaching at Cal State Fullerton, and there was a young woman there who I assume 
she had some sort of Christian background. She was just peppering me with really, really good questions. I'm sure I've mentioned this story on this podcast before because it's probably my favorite story. And if you ever, if I ever talked to you about the resurrection, I probably have told you this story. Or if I've preached on it and you've been there, I've, I've probably mentioned the story. So she's peppering me with questions, and finally she she gave me the uh, well, well, you know, tell me about the soul. What is a soul? I, I keep hearing about this soul, but what is the soul? And I was like, you know what? I believe that man has a soul. The Westminster Confession uh, seems pretty clear on the immortality of the soul, as well as I think the New Testament speaks clearly of the soul. Um, but I said, I don't think the emphasis in the Bible is on the soul, uh, but rather on the resurrection of the body. And so as a Christian, and whenever I talk about the resurrection of the body um, on campus, I always feel my body. I always, I always like say, this body is going to be resurrected and touch my arms. So let them, it's, it's going to be very physical. I don't have this hope of flying off on the, cra- on, on the clouds somewhere and uh, you know, playing harps and all that sort of jazz, but rather I look forward to uh, the resurrection of the body. And so I was just kind of going on and on for uh, a minute or so about the resurrection. And so one of the ideas that you know, resurrection is not the immortality of the soul. Resurrection is not dying and going to heaven, but resurrection is really truly the self-same body that goes into the tomb comes out. And so I was like, and so Jesus uh, was risen from the dead. And, and, uh, and it, it was like a total light bulb for her. And she goes, oh! That's why the tomb was empty. That's why the tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And uh, and then it was funny because like the light goes on and all the pieces I've been saying throughout the day kind of started to make sense to her. She's like, oh, and you've been saying that he's Lord. And they, well, of course you'd obey the Lord. If he's the Lord, of course you'd obey him. And blah, blah, blah. And so she went on for a good minute or two connecting all these dots. And so the light went on in the room and she suddenly knew where to put all of her furniture. And so that... Uh, so, so anyway, that's what we're preaching to people is the resurrection of the body and we're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus uh, was risen from the dead. I'm reading Bart Ehrman's How Jesus Became God. Um, and I think even part of our apologetic is the resurrection of Jesus is about a man rising from the dead. It's not about the resurrection of God, although Jesus is clearly God in the flesh. I think one of the points of emphasis is that Jesus was a righteous man, and because he was a righteous man, death could not hold him. And Adam and you and me, uh, having sinned, death now holds us, and so God became a man. Uh, It's not a man becoming God, Jesus becoming God. God became a man in order to redeem men. And so it was a man, Jesus, who was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. And, you know, you had the hypostatic union and all that sort of jazz. Um, But I feel like oftentimes when it comes to the resurrection apologetic, we end up emphasizing the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity. And so the argument goes something along the lines of dead men don't rise, Jesus rose from the dead, therefore Jesus is divine. Well, that's logically and biblically and theologically not what the argument is, I believe. Jesus is a righteous man, therefore he rose from the dead. He did not have to die for his own sins, he died for the sins of others and was resurrected. And so I obviously believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, um, but the resurrection in and of itself is not a proof of that. It's a proof that Jesus is a righteous man, I believe, uh, more so than evidences to a resurrection or evidences to divinity. Jesus is divine. The resurrection is not necessarily the proof in the pudding for that per se, um, although he died for our sins. Anyway, more, more than I want to discuss. But before we get into uh, our analysis of Bart Ehrman's historiography, I want to brush on uh, what we have coming up in the October with the uh, first annual Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. 
Um, and if you go over to crosspolitik.com and you, you know, you can subscribe, become a member of crosspolitik.com. If you put in like Campus Preacher, I think you help our show in some regard. And if that's happening, what we, uh, if you do that by September the 1st, you will get $100 off of our conference. It's going to be taking place in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the first to the third. And it's going to be outstanding, I think. And if you go to the website, you can go to the early bird registration. Um, see if I can give you a price. Uh, price until June the 15th is $199. And if you become a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network prior to June, prior to September 1, but you do it prior to June 1, um, you'll get $100 off. So it'll be $99. Um, if you do it by June 15th, and then the day of the event, um, well, all right now all we have is early bird. So go ahead and do the go ahead and do the early bird. And the lineup, like I've uh, mentioned, is like a murderer's row of people. We're gonna have Toby Sumter, uh, you know, weak hitter, uh, Doug Wilson, Rod Martin, George Grant, and Glenn Sunshine. I'm actually uh, never met Glenn Sunshine, but if you've seen the uh, by what standard documentary? I think he did a phenomenal job uh, describing uh, kind of the cultural Marxism and critical race theory in that. And so I think it's worth, uh, you know, uh, yeah, plenty of plenty of good men who are going to be uh, preaching. I think there's a couple others still in the hopper uh, that we may uh, get to come to it. So that's what we have going on. What else do we have brewing? If you go over to the App Store, you can download our app. Uh, Christchurch was this recently kind of temporarily suspended from the Google Play Store. And I don't think it was targeted at uh, Christchurch per se, but they're kind of blocking a bunch of um, basically podcasts uh, or apps that were um, brushing on the whole coronavirus and sort of stuff because they were trying to stop misinformation or whatever. So uh, there, there were a slew of resources that were basically blocked. So I don't think it's limited to... Uh, Christchurch, but nonetheless, part of the what we what we'd hope to do is that uh, we have a really good app, and if enough people are downloading and accessing our information through the app, we never have to worry about. Well, I, I guess they can stop the app from uh, being downloaded. But anyway, go to the, go to the podcast or wherever you do, wherever you get your apps, and download our app, and you'll get all of our podcasts, including what we now have as a baseball show on there. Um, even though baseball season is not in full swing, but hopefully in the next few weeks. Some of that will get going on. So those are some of the house cleaning uh, things. And so what I want to do now is ever so briefly start to get into the basic ideas behind Bart Ehrman's um, presuppositions regarding his investigation into historiography and stuff like that. Because one of the things that's interesting is uh, – and one of the things I like about Bart Ehrman is he's rhetorically forceful. If you listen to him debate, I actually think he's a great debater. I think the way he frames things and asserts things and says things – is rhetorically effective to the listeners. And so even I was just briefly listening to a debate he was having on um, uh, manuscript transmission, and he just kept saying, and we have copies of copies of copies of copies. And just to redundantly repeat that was was effective from the standpoint that you were sitting there going, oh, wow, we do not have the autographs. All we have is copies of copies of copies of copies, even if Bart in more academic settings knows – a little more truly that what we have is, you know, probably, he'll probably use the language of probably, probably right. He would never say it's certainty. And I think we can all agree with that. Anybody who's accepting some form of textual criticism uh, that we ha- and a good source on that, so you don't think I'm a, a nut, is if you want to read Greg Bonson's 
um, can't remember the title, but if you punch in Greg Bonson and Autographa into uh, your Google search, Greg Bonson's article will come up. And that originally appeared in an inerrancy. And so here's a man like Greg Bonson clearly arguing that the autographs are sufficient. That uh, is when we talk about inerrancy, what we have are the autographs in mind, not copies of copies. And uh, but yet, what we have in the transmission is sufficient for the task of evangelism and building up a church and everything else. So that's uh, what Greg Bonson argues. And so. One of the things that he does that's rhetorically effective is he suggests that, um, you know, every time when he goes to respond, conservative evangelical apologists, evangelical apologists. And just by saying that, he does a really good job of just suggesting that, see, see, these people are biased. They're not real scholars. They're not real academics. They don't really have an argument. What they have are, you know, they're apologists. That's what they have to do. And have you, if you listen to, What's that guy's name? Rhett and something. They do the ear biscuits and morning glory or mythical mornings or something like that. And they were professing Christians for a while, I guess, over the last four years. They have apostatized. And Rhett, one of the things he mentions in his apostasy video is that he uh, read Bart Ehrman. If you listen to him closely, he basically regurgitates so many of uh, Bart Ehrman's talking points. And one of the things, if you listen to the whole thing, is rhetorically it's kind of structured like a Bart Ehrman thing where he goes after Christian apologists and almost suggesting that they're duplicitous and they're not sincere and they're just doing it for money and they're, you know, they don't really have an argument. They're just doing it because they, they need to keep their careers intact. And that seems to be a little bit of what he's uh, suggesting. But anyway, what I wanted to uh, brush on is Bart Ehrman and the idea of uh, pre, some of his presuppositions. Because one thing that's kind of funny is uh, what he ends up saying is this. Um, he's, he's talking about religious faith and historical knowledge are two different ways of "Quote unquote knowing." Why? I <laughs> just so so. This is a paragraph in his book, "How Jesus Became God." I just want to ask: religious faith and historical knowledge are two different ways of knowing. But I just want to ask: why? Where where does he get the idea that religious faith and uh, uh, historical knowledge are two different ways of knowing? Now, depending on how you're teasing that out. Now, obviously, there's a grain of truth to. Uh, the idea of looking at something in history and how I know that historical event, and then the reality of God revealing himself as being eternal. And so obviously no historical data point could ever tell you that God is eternal. Uh, you're, you're never going to be able to take in that historical data point. So, um, but, but I don't want to say there are two different ways of knowing as if uh, history is, uh, you know, he put it in quote, as his hi- history is real knowledge, but theology is um, you know, kind of like this Kantian uh, uh, numeral realm that we can't really know. So anyway, uh, religious faith and historical uh, knowledge are two different ways of quote-unquote knowing. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, we affirmed wholeheartedly the words of Handel's Messiah taken from the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible, I know that my Redeemer liveth. But we quote-unquote knew this not because of historical investigation, but because of our faith. Whether Jesus is still alive today because of his resurrection, or indeed whether any such great miracles have happened in the past, cannot be, quote-unquote, known by means of historical study, but only on the basis of faith. But again, why? Where, do you, where does he get this concept that historical study can give us one realm of knowledge, but it can't tell us whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead, and that's really on the basis of faith? Uh, I'm, I'm still curious where he gets this idea from. This is not because historians are required to adopt unbelieving presuppositions or secular assumptions hostile to religion. It is purely the result of the nature of historical inquiry itself, whether undertaken by believers or unbelievers, as I will try to explain in later chapters. 
I would just say I don't think uh, you know he's going to try to explain in uh, later chapters, and we're going to uh, get in. We'll, we'll look at that. You know, this is actually this podcast is going longer than I planned. Um, so I would just say that he, and I'll brush on it next week, I guess. You know, let's do it now. Um, so later in that book, he says this. This is still from his uh, How Jesus Became God. Um, he says this, But the view I map out here is that none of these divine miracles or any others can be established historically. Conservative evangelical Christian apologists are right to say that this is because of the presuppositions of the investigators. But earlier he just says, It's not because of my religious presuppositions or secular assumptions. Uh, go back to this again. He says, um, uh, whether Jesus is still alive today because of his resurrection or indeed whether any such great miracle ever happened in the past cannot be known by means of historical study, but only on the basis of faith. This is not because if historians are required to adopt unbelieving presuppositions or secular assumptions hostile to religion. And then what does he go on to say? Um, Christian apologists are right to say that this is because of the presuppositions of the investigator, but not for the reason they think. And so he ceased to back off of that. But the, the Bart is limiting, or Dr. Ehrman is limiting his realm of knowledge by his presuppositions. And he kind of acknowledges that in one breath, he takes it back in the other. Um, he goes on to say, uh, the first thing to stress is that everyone has presuppositions and it is impossible to live life, think deep thoughts, have religious experiences, or engage in historical inquiry without having presuppositions. The life of the mind cannot proceed without presuppositions. The question, though, is always this. What are the appropriate presuppositions for the task at hand? The presupposition that the Roman Catholic believer uh, brings to his experience of the mass will be different from the presuppositions that the scientist brings to her explanation of the Big Bang Theory and different from the presuppositions that historians bring to their study of the Inquisition. So let me stress that historians working as historians do indeed have presuppositions. It is important, therefore, to know something about the kind of presuppositions historians have when they are engaged in the act of reconstructing what actually happened. And so what he goes on to explain, he, he gives this illustration of uh, Martians coming, you know, that maybe they helped win a civil war, or whatever it may be. But, you know, right now, most of the people in our culture don't share the assumptions that there's going to be Martians, and so that shouldn't be part of our inquiry. Um, now, obviously, I think, you know, you can go to an outlier at that and say, okay, that's kind of true. But what we're debating here in part is what's intertwined, and in a sense, you come to the your presuppositions inform what is historically uh, available to us is the question is what is the nature of reality? Is the nature of reality include a personal being that backs the cosmos? And Ehrman would want to say historical investigation can't tell us that. And if I want to grant, okay, that we'll grant for the sake of debate that's true, uh, we still have to answer that question um, because if there is a personal being back in the cosmos that interacts with the world. Um, what we're going to call miracles may not be the best expression of what he's doing in history and time and space, but we have to deal with the reality that he's interacting with the world, which opens up a can of worms such as the resurrection. Um, because even going all the way back to the first century, it's not like the Greeks believed in a resurrection. It's not like the Jews were looking for a resurrection in the middle of history. So there, there, are, there are things like this that airmen gets into that's really frustrating because he yeah he often throws out the term the apologist the christian apologist and rhetorically it's effective um but i don't think he's being uh completely honest and one other thing before i wrap this one up i wanted to get into 
Uh, I'm actually going to steal something from N.T. Wright. So hopefully you guys don't think N.T. Wright is a heretic. He, he's actually, when he's doing history, he's actually really, really good for the most part. I think he's a great historian, um, not always a great social critic, uh, although he's really good on marriage and homosexuality, generally speaking. Um, but yeah, so, so his first three books, uh, the New Testament, the people of God, Jesus and the victory of God, and the resurrection of the Son of God are phenomenal. And uh, I think they're all worth reading, uh, even if there are definitely points where I disagree with, all, although I, I almost can sign off everything in the resurrection of the Son of God. Phenomenal book. So, uh, but here, here's, um, here's how he's getting into his methodology. And one of the things that's kind of important uh, that I think kind of counter Ehrman, who is adopting secular presuppositions, he goes and say, um, it is sometimes thought that the real reason uh, that, that people are having problems with, with studying the Gospels is the rejection of the miraculous, and hence they felt the impossibility of using the Gospels as serious history. About this I shall have more to say later, uh, later on when writing about the life of Jesus. But a basic point must be made here. Accounts of strange happenings in any culture or tradition are, of course, subject to legendary accretions. But one cannot rule out a priori the possibility of things occurring in ways not normally expected, since to do so would be to begin from the fixed point that a particular worldview, namely the 18th century rationalist one or its 20th century positive successor, is correct in postulating that the universe is simply a closed continuum of cause and effect. How can any scientific inquiry now allow for the possibility that its own worldview might be incorrect? If it is replied that certain types of argument and inquiry would cut off the branch on which the worldview is sitting, the counter reply might be that if that is where the argument leads, you had better find yourself another branch or even another tree. This is emphatically not to say that pre-enlightenment worldview was after all correct. Why once we challenge the prevailing dualisms, should there only be two possibilities, the pre-modernist and the modernist ones? To say that the Gospels cannot be read as they stand because their view of the miraculous conflicts with the enlightenment worldview does not itself mean that they can only be read as they stand from within a pre-critical Christian faith. There might be plenty of other worldviews, not necessarily Christian ones, within which one could read the Gospels without being offended by the miracles. Nor is it to say that if we are to read the Gospels as they stand, miracles and all, we must frankly admit that we are ceasing to do history and are now in, in doing something else, namely theology, or a kind of meta-history. So anyway, that's vital. And I'm reading that off of the Kindle, which is page 93, location 2387. If you uh, have that in Kindle, it's worth looking up because every time Ehrman goes to get into other issues, he's like, oh, now they're doing theology. And so uh, what, what Wright is pointing out is the way that Bart Ehrman does historiography is predicated on a Enlightenment worldview. And then from there, it's positivist um, 20th century kind of brother or uh, sibling or whatever you want to call it, that downstream child. And so the, the reality of it is when you start to read someone like Bart Ehrman, uh, he does have tons of presuppositions that he's bringing to the table and the nature of reality. And what he wants to do from the word go is, or where he's going with it from the word go, is he's ruling out all sorts of realms of knowledge that we as Christians, we just simply say that's, that's your presuppositions bringing to the table. And that's where we need to discuss the broader picture of, is there a God? and all that sort of stuff. So all these things are intertwined. So anyway, this is, uh, you know, I think Bart Ehrman is ultimately against history. In some ways, he does it pretty good. Um, he's helpful in some areas, but at other points, due to his worldview commitments and his presuppositions, despite going back and forth on whether or not, or how much he has them, um, he's kind of misleading us. 
uh, and misleading his reader. But nonetheless, it's rhetorically effective. I've watched it be effective on quite a few people. So that's part one. We're going to look at uh, the burial next week, and hopefully the week after that we'll look at uh, Ehrman's take on the resurrection and uh, how we'd respond. So that's this episode of the Cancer Church Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at CampusPreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, or Campus Preacher on Instagram, Keith Darrell on Facebook. Uh, Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got